is going to save. Today we want to look at the commitment to the covenant in, in Genesis chapter 50. And this is an amazing text. This is the last words of Genesis. Um, and I think you'll be highly encouraged as we look through this today. Let's pray and then we'll look at this text. Father, thank you for uh, just fun to think about life and how, how fragile we really are. But um, really we just turn back to dust. And these bodies are not something we should really overly put effort towards but our soul should be what we should work on the most lord that inner person that one that has been saved and is learning to love you and and lord we may we work hard on that spiritual aspect lord and someday if you don't return lord we will all pass from this life to the next and our bodies will disintegrate but our souls will be with you and we believe in the God of promise. And we know, we know, God, that you promise that those who come to you by faith alone, through Christ alone, through grace alone, when they are absent from this body, they are present with you. And that's great hope for us. That's a great blessing to the saved, to the elect, to those who know that they will live forever with our Savior. And so, Lord, as we look at a couple of patriarchs tonight in the ends of their lives, may it make us contemplate about our present life. Are we a person who believes in the God of promise? Do we trust him? And does it impact our present life? So, Lord, challenge us with these things today as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the last chapter of Genesis records the burial of of Jacob. It really focuses in on a, a very Christ-likeness of Joseph, and then it ends with the death of Joseph. And that brings us to the conclusion of Genesis. In the beginning was God and the death of Joseph. 2,500 years of time in Genesis, the longest book of time recorded for us. But more importantly, it is a record of a commitment to a God of promise. These men, Jacob and Joseph, believed God. And these men believed God's promises so much that God had reserved a land for them. And even beyond the land and, and, and even beyond the grave, they, built, they believed that God was a, a grand architect. He was a builder of a city that was not made with hands Hebrews chapter 11 verse 10 reminds us that Abraham himself and these men as well, they were looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. They knew there was something greater. And so they believed in a God that had a promise. However, no burial in the Bible, when you study this, there's no burial in the Bible that gives more detail to the funeral service than Jacob's. It's the most detailed funeral service we have in all of the Bible. There's many who believe that it gives in some indications of, of how you should think about death and, and funerals. I, I think the main point is not cremation or physical burial. I know some people have opinions on that, and you can hear preachers that have opinions one way or another. I personally think that is a conscience issue. There's nothing in the Bible that would say that. Many of men died in war and got eaten and devoured by sharks and stuff. I don't think God's going to have any problem resurrecting them. And so it is a conscious issue, but I believe it's, there's a lesson. Death teaches a lesson here. And it teaches us 
what we believe in and what we live for. In your death, and when we die, and maybe you're in this room and we are here speaking of you or myself, what are we going to speak about? What will we talk about? What God of promise did you believe in and put your hope in, and how did that dictate your life? And where was the likeness of Christ in your life? So I think there's some great lessons here as we look at death. Point number one, death grieving in a funeral based on the promises of God. Look with me at the first three verses. Then Joseph fell on his father's neck and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now 40 days were required for it, for such is the period the period required for embalming, and the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. Now, when Jacob dies, um, his spirit leaves him, right? Just like any of us. And presumably, I would probably say he was taken by angels because we see a little bit of evidence of that. And Joseph immediately knows his father is gone. And, and Luke records, and you know, remember the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16, verse 22, that when one died, he went to judgment. And, and the other, the poor man, when he died, was carried away by angels to Abraham's bosom. Do you remember that? Well, Abraham's bosom is a term, it's an expression. It was found in the Talmud. Um, and it was an expression for heaven. It was, it was used by Jews who uh, defined a place of great rest and honor. Um, it was used of reclining at a table, celebrating as they waited for others to join them. Um, and so a lot of people want to talk about Abraham's bosom and try to figure all that. It actually was just a, a, a kind of a figure of speech that came out of the Talmud for heaven and a place of rest and honor as you wait for others to come join you. Um, Christ used it for those who had faith in him alone. And that's the idea of Luke chapter 16, and that the word of God was sufficient to bring you to him. However, Jacob had breathed his last now in, in chapter 49, verse 33. If you see right at the end, remember this. He, Jacob charged his sons after he gave them the prophecies of what was going to happen to their descendants and he drew his feet in, and remember the Bible says here at the end, he breathed his last and was gathered to his people. But Joseph's response is precious, isn't it? In verse 1. If you've ever been with someone who you love dearly who passed away, you may have had a similar response. Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. What a beautiful thing. He spent the, uh, probably a large part of his life away from him. He did not have the chance to, from 17 years old up to be with his father because of what his brothers did. But even though we, we understand when death comes along that there's confidence in, in the future life of someone that we love, it's hard. It's hard. We, we saw that last Wednesday as we spoke with Kyle and and we reminded of, of how life is difficult at times and there's time to grieve. There's time for sorrow. And we were reminded of those things. And we're reminded that death, it's a great enemy of mankind. Death is powerful and strong. And the Bible, Hebrew says that, you know, man is once unto death and then judgment. Death is out there and it waits and it takes no prisoners. But Christ, but the great thing about 
our Lord and Savior, he's, he beats death. You remember Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, therefore since we were children served in flesh and blood, so him likewise took part, so he took on flesh, his incarnation, that through death, his death, he would render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 15 says this, and might free those through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And so he frees us of the fear of death. That's what Jesus did for us. But it doesn't mean it's not difficult. But there's a day coming, and we mentioned this verse in some sermon recently, uh, Revelation chapter 21, that John heard a loud voice, and behold, the tabernacle of God was among men, and he dwelt among them, and they were his people, and, and God himself was among them, and he wiped away every tear from their eyes, and, and there was no longer any death. I love that phrase. No more death. It'll be a day when you and I are in the presence of the Lord, and death will never be a part of that. But then Paul says, as we figure out death, in 1 Thessalonians, he reminds the believers that, that he wanted them to, to not be like the rest of people. Chapter 4, verse 3, he says, you're not like the rest of the world. We don't grieve like they do because he says in that text, we have a hope. So though we go through times of grieving, and, and this first verse is just powerful as I thought about this, probably the closest person um, that I watched pass away was Gina's grandfather. I didn't have any grandfathers, so he became my grandfather, and we were there when he took his last breath, and, and wow, you weep over that. But we knew where Bump was. We knew where he was going, and we did not grieve like the rest of the world for very long. We did grieve, and we missed him many times. I, he owned a, a very large ranch close to Redding, California, probably the largest ranch closest to the, to the city proper. And, um, man, it was just some special times with him. And I'll think about that, and, just, and, I, and I miss him. But I don't grieve like the world grieves, because the Bible says, because they don't have hope. You and I have hope. And I think Joseph knew this. So our sorrow cannot last because our hope's in Christ. Now, interesting enough, it is, it's said that the other brothers, there's nothing said about the brothers' response to the father's death. Joseph seems to be there. He seems to be dominating this scene here. But notice in verse 2, Joseph pulls himself together. There's arrangements that have to be made, right? And once again, he takes the lead to deal with this pretty intense situation. His death is in a different culture. Jacob's death is in a different religion, and it needed a man of God to handle these. One of the things is often Pastor Rick and I are dealing with some service that needs to happen. We're looking for that guy who can help us lead through that. Who's going to take charge in that family and help? Uh, because you need a man of God to stand up in these difficult times. And, and of course, Joseph does. And Joseph you notice that he turns to his own private physicians. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians. So he turns to his own private physicians and gives instructions to embalm Jacob. Now, doubtlessly, Jacob had been in Egypt a long time. He had seen this process. He had known what would happen. And, and, and think about this. Jacob's starting to do the, I mean, excuse me, uh, Joseph's starting to do the numbers. 
He knows how long Egypt's going to grieve for him. This is a national treasure. Jacob's become a national treasure to, J- to Egypt. He knows that process. He knows it's 40 days to embalm. He knows it's a 70-day mourning uh, and long extended funeral process in it. Then there's the trip to Canaan. That's at least another month back to Mamre, if not longer, because they're going to stop for another seven days and have another funeral service along the way in Canaan. And so Joseph's smart. He goes, we're going to embalm Dad. He... The only one, think about this, the only one not buried, as we've gone through Genesis, in the, buried in the trees of Mamre there at the cave is Rachel. And she dies on the trail outside of Bethel, and they couldn't embalm her, so they buried her there. Isn't that interesting? But Joseph knows what needs to be done. And so the Egyptians had figured out how to mummify the body in order to preserve it almost indefinitely. I mean, it's amazing. They still find these guys, and they open them up, and wow, they're there. Um, through this process. So it took 40 days to mummify Jacob's body, the Bible says here, and the Egyptians mourned for 70 days, and this is an amazing thing. As I studied this and read several people on this, he had to be some kind of national importance. There's no way the nation would mourn for just anybody for 70 days. He was recognized as a godly man. He was a man of God, and the Egyptian community took time to recognize that. Even though they did not believe in the God of the Hebrews, the God of Jacob, they stopped and witnessed that. And I think it's amazing that an Egyptian who, who the Egyptians would join themselves to a shepherd. Remember we talked about that? They, they thought shepherds were, were lowly people because they worked in dirt, and they didn't like dirt, and they didn't want anything to do with them. Here, this whole nation stops for 70 days to mourn a shepherd as Jacob is laid to rest. I think it's important just here as we, before we go on, don't underestimate the power of life lived for God. This is a pagan nation. There's nothing in the text tells us that great amounts of people are following the God of Jacob. And yet this man is recognized for who he is. And it reminds us, do not underestimate a life lived for God. People will come to your funeral. You will have an impact in people's lives. And they want to know. And at the end of your life, they're going to want to see what people say about you and how your church reacts and all of that because you had an impact in their life. And so that's what memorial services are about. They're about preaching the gospel and talking about that person who loved the Lord. And certainly there was a great impact. Verses 4 through 6, notice what happens here. When the days of mourning for him were past, these 70 days are over, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, please speak with Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, or take an oath, saying, Behold, I am about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go and bury my father, and then I will return. And Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father, as he has made you swear. I think these are fascinating events. The seven days are over. Joseph and his brothers are ready to bury dad. But keeping his promise was easier said than done. (laughs) I mean, I want you to think about this a little bit. The famine's long gone But Joseph is this major key component to the economy of Egypt. And I'm not sure Pharaoh would be all that quick to let them go back. The land of Canaan is now very fertile again. They know those grazing grounds. 
That's where God told them they would have that land. And I think probably, most likely, Pharaoh might have been nervous about this. But, but it's so important to get this. Joseph believed the promises of God, and that included that, that they were to stay in, stay in the land. So look what he does. He, he comes to Pharaoh in a very diplomatic way, right? He seeks favor of the Pharaoh's officers. So he asked them to go to Pharaoh for them, to petition on his behalf, and they petition. But notice what he says right at the end of verse 5. Look at this. And he says, I'll go bury my father, and then this little, little phrase, then I will return. That's interesting that it's in there. There's another promise by a very godly man. For I know you count on me. I understand what's going on here. But more importantly, my God told my great-grandfather Abraham that we were going to be in this land. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. And that's exactly what he did. Joseph, the man of God, gave his word, and that was enough for Pharaoh. Pharaoh knew the power of an oath, and he knew Joseph. He knew Joseph was a man of his word, and Joseph had promised Dad he would bury him in Canaan, and he promised Pharaoh, I'm coming back. He was a man of his word. Boy, that's what we need today, don't we? People of their word. Isn't that difficult today? Someone gives you their word and then changes their mind? So it's one of the lack of character we see in society anymore. Unfortunately, we see it in the church sometimes. What's your word? Is it your bond? Is your yes, yes? And your no, no? Hold, do you hold to your vows? Many of you stood before God and your friends of your vows of your marriage. Do you hold those vows before God? Joseph was such a man of God. And it's interesting. Here, this man that has reshaped Israel, made them the superpower of the world, is about ready to leave town, and Pharaoh says, I trust your word. I don't know about you and who you work for and who you're around. Many of you probably don't work in a church setting. I'm mainly around Christians a lot. But I did spend a lot of time, as you heard, (laughs) um, doing something that was with pagan people. Was your word your bond? And, and I, I think it's such an important thing that reflects godly character. And it's another thing, just like Christ. When Christ said he would do something, he did it. And Joseph is that type. Notice verse 7 through 11. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh and the elders of his house and all the elders of the land of Egypt. And all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household, they left only the little ones and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen. And there also went up with them Uh, both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there for a very great, uh, with a very great and sorrowful lamentation, and and he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. And therefore, it was named Abel Mizram, which, which is beyond the Jordan. So here this massive funeral procession goes. And, and again, it tells you what they thought of this family, particularly uh, Jacob and Joseph. He sends his own people with him. Now, some thought, well, he's there to protect them. But I don't think that's what it was. I think they knew Joseph. They knew that Joseph was not, was not some elaborate escape program. 
And Pharaoh was honoring this, this family, this family that held to different beliefs, came from a different culture, but their word was their bond, and they lived out what they said. And so he sends all of his servants, he sends the elders of his household, the elders of the land. Do you imagine how big Egypt is at this point? Remember, they acquired a tremendous amount of land during the famine. So this is no little, you know, six-car funeral parade going down Granada. This thing's going on for miles. And this is, this is an amazing procession that happens. This threshing floor of a, a tad here where this funeral procession stops. It's, it's on the other side of the Jordan there and and it's probably named, it's, a dad is probably the owner of the name, I would imagine, of the person who owned the threshing floor, or at least in that area. But here's this Hebrew slash Egyptian procession carrying out a formal seven-day period of mourning, a long funeral service, or memorial service will be, and, 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 and it left such an impact <laughs> on the local Canaanites that they gave it this, uh, this name. And really, the name, I looked it up, it meant Meadow of the Egyptians. Now, now they must have went through their mind, why is this mixture of Hebrews and Egyptians having a funeral here and not in Egypt? Why are they doing it here? What is happening? And the grave speaks beyond it. Uh, one of the things I love is reading biographies, especially biographies of Christian and men and women who serve the Lord. I, I love to read their biographies. And, and, and what it does is the grave still speaks because those men and those women remind you of a life worth living. They love the same Savior we love. They love the same scriptures we love. Christianity hasn't changed. We believe in this historical Christianity. And these people who went before us, whether they're missionaries in Africa or, or wherever um, they may have been or, or reformers or someone like that, they believed the exact same thing we believed and they lived often in much more difficult times. And here these people are looking at this going, wow, what is this? Can you imagine as some of them found out who this was and, and who his God was? And so um, here's this procession. I, I did read a little bit why they stopped here. Some people said that Egypt still probably owned maybe some of that land in that area. It was a place, safe place to stop, possibly. Look at verses 12 through 14. Thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For the sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. So after this morning in this funeral procession that stopped along the way had concluded, Joseph and the brothers took took the body of their father and they crossed the Jordan there and, and buried him in the promised land, in this grave that Abraham had bought because they believed the commandment of God. They believed. And this was a massive undertaking because Jacob and Joseph believed God's promise. And sometimes we have to do things that are hard and they take a lot of work, but we do it because we believe that God wants us to do these things. Some people ask, why are you guys doing all this? Because we think God wants us to do this. Why all this work on discipleship and getting people's lives? Because we believe God wants us to do it. And it's hard and it takes time and you've got to convince people it's worth it. And It's worth it. You believe these things. You believe a God of promise that we are to study and show ourselves approved and to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we work hard at things. We work hard at parenting and marriage. 
We work hard at being a witness in the, in the workplace. These things are worth doing because God commands it. He is a God of promise. And we truly believe God's word. And we take up the cross and we follow him. Notice in verse 17, the brothers returned to Egypt. This is important. Joseph is a man of his word. And Joseph certainly believed that God had led them to Egypt. And he believed God would lead them out of Egypt. He knew the promises that God gave to Abraham way back in chapter 15 that you're going to be in a land that's not yours for 400 years. He knew those promises, doubtlessly. And so he left the land of Egypt to go bury his father and he returned because he knew God would bring them out. He has a perfect plan. No matter what comes your way, God has a plan. He's not making it up as he goes. Do you believe it? Do you trust it? Number two, the character and Christ-likeness of Joseph. Look at verse 15 with me here. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? Pretty good confession there, isn't it? We've done all these things. So dad's dead. They're buried. The brothers are now back with him in Egypt. The brothers who sold him into slavery, they are now fearing paybacks. It's interesting, sinfulness will do that to you. Sinfulness makes you think poorly of others' motives. If you deal with people who are in sin and won't confess it, you need to be careful because they will come up with all kinds of things thinking that you're going to do something because that's the way they do it. That's what sin does. I love that Proverbs in Proverbs 28, 1, the wicked flee when no one's pursuing. See, they conjure up because sin keeps them thinking poorly. And so they do things that you go, well, why are you running? No one's chasing you. Because they think like, they think that way. So even here, Joseph, he, he's assured them doubtlessly that he would take care of them. He's already said that, I'm going to take care of you. But their sinful minds got the best of them. Their, that sense of guilt was very strong. And guilt is a result of lack of repentance. It's a terrible thing. You, you don't deal with your sin and you keep blame shifting it, you will have guilt. But God doesn't want you to live that way. He doesn't want your heart to harden. He doesn't want false thinking. He doesn't want false accusations. He wants us to turn to him. Now, Nowhere in Scripture um, is ever recorded this true confession to Joseph. Now, there was an understanding when, he's, when they're before them and, he's, and he brings them in and, and there's an understanding that he knew what they were doing, but they had never verbally spoken. And I think that Joseph was just a more spiritual person. He was more godly and he'd forgiven them. But this, under, this, this helps you understand that this they, they held a grudge, but Joseph didn't hold a grudge. And, and, I, and I love that about this. I study, you don't have to fall into this begrudging life. And it's hard when somebody does you wrong, particularly family members. That's difficult. And probably every one of us in here suffer in some way from some relationship where somebody in the family treats you poorly. And the temptation is, is to begrudging them, but that's not what Joseph does. Doubtlessly, there was maybe not the closeness up to this point that there should have been because Joseph felt that grudge. But here, here maybe 
Maybe Joseph's wondering why they had not verbalized it, but his godly character just seems to go on. He seems to do what God wants him to do despite how his brothers are acting. Now, it also seems the brothers were banking on Joseph's love while Jacob was around so that nothing would happen to him. But now dad's dead, and there's, there seems to be an unbridled fear here that gets the best of him. Look at 16 with me, down, down into 17 a little bit. So they sent a messenger to Joseph saying, your father charged before he died, saying, <laughs> I'll remind you what dad said, thus you shall say to Joseph, Thus you should say to Joseph. So, so the Joseph, remember he appealed to Pharaoh through the servants there. So they kind of do the same thing. They, they appeal to Joseph through a messenger. And the messenger says, hey, uh, remember dad said to forgive us. <laughs> boys will be boys. They don't want to go face to face at this point with him. In fact, as you study the record, nowhere in the record do we have where Jacob said these things in Genesis, but I don't think there's a reason to question it. Um, and, and because what happens is pretty remarkable in the rest of the verse. Look at, look at verse 17, follow it down. Please forgive. I beg you, now notice the terminology, the transgression of your brothers, now they're, they're saying this on behalf of dad, but there's gonna be a change here, and, and their sin, for they did you wrong. So real, real clear, real clear confession and repentance. And, and clearly Joseph had no intention of punishing them, right? He was gonna take care of them in their land of Goshen, but this confession seems to really touch him. Notice the rest of the verse. And now, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Now look at this little phrase at the end of this. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. So it seems somewhere along the line that these brothers came in together and said, yes, they sent this message. Dad said to forgive and beg transgression. But now we want you to forgive our transgression. And then they call themselves the servants of the God of our father. So no doubt, Joseph was thankful for the confession. But, he, but this shows that that there was repentance and, and true, genuine turn from it. Notice the phrase, they call themselves servants of the God of your father. And I think that's significant. And, and maybe, maybe from Joseph's example or, or maybe from Jacob's prophecy of the descendants or some kind of com combination of both, God had done a work in these boys' life. And it, and it truly seems by this statement that they too had come to realization that God had a special calling on this family and they needed to be right with God, and God was going to do something with this future nat nature, and they probably understand there was a seed coming because that's what Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and Joseph believed. And so th there seems to be a true change in their confession here. And in order to show their change of heart and that they were repentant, they were truly repentant and brought to the will of God, notice what they do in verse 18. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him, and said, behold, we are your servants. Now, this is, this is quite amazing. Remember, they had sold Joseph into slavery, and now, look, that's what they're doing. Now they're willing to be slaves. That's a real change. We made you a slave. We'll be your slave. And I, I think that goes along with recognizing that when, 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 when true, sin is really repented of, it often includes uh, 
really restitution. You want to make something right. You know, I remember throwing the baseball through the neighbor's window and going over and said, Mr. Wilson, it's me. I'm glad to pay for your windows. And he says, you bet you are. <laughs> okay. Dad, I need the money and I got to work for you to get, pay the window off. Well, here these guys are saying, we made you a slave. We'll be a slave. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. We understand what we did. We'll be slaves to you. But Joseph knew the grace of God, didn't he? Man, he experienced the grace of God. And this Christ-like character and type was, was in Joseph. And look at verse 19. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Wow, what a statement. For am I in God's place? In other words, I am not God. I don't take lives and I don't give lives. But here's what I do know about God. He's a God of grace. And boy, does Joseph know grace, and does he understand that? And so in verse, um, in verse 20, notice what comes out of him. As for you, yeah, you meant it for evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. With full forgiveness in Joseph's heart. Understanding the grace of God, even though his brothers intended what he, they did for evil, it was a premeditated, murderous plot. But Joseph says, God was ahead of you. God knew better. And God, and I mean, think about what he's saying here. God had ordained the most severe and most difficult set of testing and trials in my life to bring about his perfect will and to save our family. That's what God did. Whew, man, I don't know if I could get there. Lost all those years. All those years with the kids and grand, I mean, nephews and nieces and Benjamin and Seeing the death, missing the death of several people doubtlessly, living in, in Egypt, being put in prison, accused of rape, all the things he went through. At the end of this, he can say, yeah, I, I understand you meant it for evil. I get what you're saying. But the God of grace had something bigger going on. Boy, you just think if we get our mind around that when difficult things come. Even, and I think it's not so much... Well, it would, certainly would be when, when testing comes our way medically or physically or something like that. But here it's when somebody plots evil against you. That really hurts. I think I'd rather have my arm broke than a dear loved one plot evil against you. That's really painful. And to be able to say, God was in this. God was in this. And he has a perfect will, and he's, and he's going to bring this to fruition. The psalmist said in Psalm 76.10, listen to this, Surely the wrath of man shall praise you, God. <laughs> what? Surely the wrath of man will bring praise to God? That, that, that's an outstanding thought. I mean, when you stop and think about that, I, I pondered on that psalm this week, and I thought, the wrath of man brings you glory? Do you think those brothers did this really laughingly? They hated Joseph. Their wrath was on full display when they, when they plotted to kill him and then threw him into a pit and then sold him and then lied about him. That was wrath they did that. Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. 
Wow, that's a godly man. When you get to that point where you can say, surely the wrath of God can even be his praise. The wrath of man can be God's praise. God even takes the wrath of men and uses it for his glory. And God had so clearly so Joseph that the wicked deeds of his brother were, the, were his plan from the beginning to bring salvation to his family. And our biblical theology teaches us it was not only salvation for Jacob's family, but it was for our salvation because in that family lied the seed of Christ. And he was going to get them to Egypt and there they would be protected. And the seed of Christ would come down through that lineage. And so we know it is so much greater than that. Notice in verse 21, Joseph says, So therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph assures his brothers that God's beautiful work would be his motivation to care for his family. I, I believe God is doing this. This is my motivation. I, know, I believe in a God who's greater than man's wickedness. And it motivates me. Instead of vengeance, God, uh, God encourages Joseph to give comfort. Instead of cursing, he gives a blessing of kind words. Isn't this what Jesus did? Peter records it this way. He says, speaking of Jesus who suffered and leaving us an example, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in turn. While suffering, he, did, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightlessly, righteously. And he himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. Boy, doesn't this sound like the life of Joseph? Right? You can see the parallel that's going on there. Joseph was a sinner. He needed Christ to die for him. Please make sure I'm you're hearing me clear on that. But he's a type. Because verse 25 says, For you were continually strained like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your soul. That's exactly what Joseph was saying to these people that meant it for evil. Third, dying with confidence and assurance in the promise of God. Dying with confidence and assurance in the promises of God. Well, Joseph dies after many years of fruitful service to God. God blessed him greatly, and he saw many of his offspring. Notice verse 22. Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. I did the math, and Jacob died. When Jacob died, Joseph was 56 years old, and so that means that Joseph lived another 54 years after the death of his father. Very fruitful years. Taking care of all of his family. And this even 110 uh, seems rather youthful in his death because Abraham died at 175, Isaac at 180, Jacob at 147, but man's longevity was kind of declining now after the flood more and more, and then it gets down to the average age that we are today eventually. But notice verse 23. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. He saw the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh, and were born on Joseph's knees. So Joseph lived to see many of his great-grandchildren. His older son, Manasseh, seems to have two more recorded sons, one here, Machir, and in Azrael. We see him in Numbers chapter 26 and Chronicles 7 in the lineage, so he has another son that's not mentioned here. 
um, and possibly many others, doubtlessly. But apparently, only the children of Machir were born while Joseph was alive. I think that's probably what this is stating here. But you know who comes from, from Machir is Gilead. He's in the direct descendants. You can track that down in the book of Numbers, chapter 26. Um, but Joseph sees the children of three generations of Ephraim. And I think this is important because I think it mentions Ephraim because Ephraim becomes that known as that northern tribes. They're, very, they're probably the strongest of all the northern tribes. And so it mentions the birth of his three generations. Verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Um, it's unclear probably how many of Joseph's brothers were still alive at this time. I don't think the text tells us. But Joseph knew he was about to die, and he calls his brothers and possibly some nephews that are around his side. And Joseph did not want them to forget that God intended this family not to live here, but in the nation of Canaan. There was a promised land. And Joseph is confident, and he's sure in the promises, even here at the death of his death. His last breaths are being recorded here. You can see the confidence he has in God. And it's, it's very beautiful. He lived his entire life this way, and, he, and now even in his death, you can see the confidence comes forth from him. And driven by this confidence in God, Joseph places his family under oath now. And, and notice the statement is in full confidence. Verse 24, again. I'm about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. So there's this strong confidence that he has in God's promises. I, boy, I hope that's true of us. And one of the sweet things for pastors and many family members is to be with people when they pass away and they're there, there are times, the last times they're conscious in, in speaking with you. You can see some of that co- encouragement that they have, that confidence they have in the Lord. And I hope and trust that we're growing that way as well. Verse 25, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So when Joseph realized that he is dying and, and, and it would be impossible for his brothers to do the same kind of funeral that they did for dad, this, that, there's no way they could put on this expedition that they did for Jacob. He says, look, I need to be buried in Canaan eventually. And here's where my confidence is. I want to go to the promised land. So he gives these clear instructions. and He, make the, he, make them, he made them swear, look, this is what we're going to do. I want to be carried to, promise, to the promised land at some time. And, and, and Hebrews chapter 11, verse 22 marks us, by faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. And so notice verse 26. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. And so here Joseph dies, and his body, most likely like Jacob, was mummified, placed in a coffin, and left in Egypt. And Gina and I were talking about this today, and, uh, and Gina loves Egyptian history, as we have so many wonderful things. Good to see you back. Oh, Got to catch up with you. Um, most likely, was, it, it was probably put in a sarcophagus. Is that right? Sarcophagus. And, and that, that would be, and you've seen some of the pharaohs in the sarcophagus, so they're very well marked. You know who they are. And, and, and certainly Joseph being in the authority that he had. I'm sure that tomb was marked. It probably had a big stamp. Canaan. <laughs> Fragile. Make sure it gets there. 
And it was probably marked with lots of memories and, and, and everything that the promises of God. And so that nation, 400 years later, and we're going to see this when they leave Egypt as we work our way through Exodus, they got that coffin with them and they're taking the bones of, of Joseph back to the land of Canaan because they believed in the promises of God. Well, what's next? Well, with the record of Joseph's death and the clear instructions of God's promises, the book of Genesis ends. 50 chapters. Longest span of time recorded in one single book in our Bible. But notice the groundwork is laid and the transition is now natural to the opening verses of Exodus. And and as I close, I want you to look at verse 8 of Exodus chapter 1. Because this is where we're going. Because it's going to be fun. We're going to study this. And there are so many great lessons as we study the plagues. And and we're going to see things about death and abortion and and life. And how death, I mean, we're doing the same things they were doing. Killing babies. And I mean, you're going to see all this stuff back here again. And plagues. And and that has something to do with end times. And there's amazing things going through Exodus. But look at verse 8. This is fascinating. Now a new king arose in Egypt who did not know Joseph. Well, there's a page turner, isn't there? What's going to happen? Here's this nation came in, 70 people, 70 people. They'll leave millions strong. But God's going to do a great miracle, and we'll watch that as we study that together. Please don't miss next Wednesday. Um, We're going to have a meal here. You're going to love him. Young Filipino guy preaching to us. We'll enjoy that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder of Genesis. What a great book. In the beginning, God starts with you. You you have the beginning. You are the beginning. All all things come from you, though you did not have a beginning. And Lord, we marched ourselves through time watching you work, watching this seed that you promised in the garden, that you promised Abraham, that you promised Isaac, that you promised Jacob. And Joseph believed that. You, we watched you protect that seed all the way through the book of Genesis so that someday this Savior would be born on earth, born in Bethlehem, born from the tribe of Judah, born in the line of David to be our Savior. And he would hang on a cross. Many since then have called on his name for salvation. And Lord, we thank you for that. And we thank you that we can study these things. And Lord, we thank you for the the practicalness of this book. We can learn about death and life and what ends, how life ends and and what is said about us and and how people will mourn and rejoice. Lord, these are all truths, Lord, that, that challenge us to live this life for you. So we thank you for our study in Genesis, Lord. Thank you for that book. It is inspired. Every word was written by you for us to learn by. And so we thank you for our study now. As we press on in Mark and Exodus and many other passages as others preach, Lord, may we be people, men and women, uh, young people, boys and girls that love the word of God and trust our souls to its truth, Lord. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.